we have um, Professor Brava Chandra with us uh, this afternoon, who has been speaking at the scientific meeting of the perinatal uh, faculty of the Royal College of Psychiatrists. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, uh, Dr. Professor Chandra, I am Dr. Manoharan. I'm a consultant perinatal psychiatrist. I would like to ask you a couple of questions uh, before Jill starts with the podcast. Uh, how was your experience at the conference today? Oh, thanks for uh, asking me. I think it's been uh, an amazing experience. I've, uh, you know, learned so much since the morning and uh, I'm really excited to see the energy in the room and the fact that uh, in the UK, uh, perinatal psychiatry is getting so much of funding, prominence, um, and clinicians are sort of wanting to do the specialty. I think it's really exciting to be in this in this conference today. Thank you so much. And do you have any future plans for collaboration between UK and India perinatal psychiatry? Oh, well, I mean, we are, uh, I have always worked with the UK and clinicians of the UK for a long time in this area. And specifically, um, we uh, are collaborating on a cohort study with the University of Liverpool uh, and uh, King's College London and the University of Reading where we're comparing cohorts between mums and babies in the in India and comparing it to another cohort, existing cohort in the UK, in the Wirral. So that's a, a major study and it's been funded by MRC. So we're really excited about that. Um, in addition with uh, Trudy uh, Seniviratne, we are working on something called the Stafford interview, which basically looks at um, assessing psychopathology and mental health in mothers uh, in mother baby units uh, and women with mental health problems so that's uh, something that we are working on with professor Ian Brockington and so yeah so these are the two major excitements which um, are going to happen thank you I'll let Jill continue with the podcast um, so thank you for coming to speak at the conference this morning um, I wondered for the benefit of people who were unable to attend if we could um, talk a little bit about your presentation this morning, perhaps the key points that you would be keen for people to have taken away um, from your really interesting presentation. Sure, it's a pleasure to share that. Um, I think the, the key things that I was talking about was um, the fact that maternal uh, suicide is more common than we think it is. Uh, that it's an important issue that we need to pay attention to and that the world over uh, suicide in the perinatal period is probably coming up as one of the topmost reasons for maternal mortality um, and also that you know we can do a lot to prevent this uh, by asking sensitive questions by using tools and methods of assessment that uh, look at the past history, look at the kind of support the woman is getting. We, we also realize that there are certain risk factors, which include untreated mental illness, of course, which is the most obvious. But in addition, presence of intimate partner violence, poor supports, presence of depression, and even anxiety. I think these are some pointers uh, towards the possibility of a suicide attempt. Um, I think the other major message uh, which I wanted to communicate was that um, suicide can be very contextual. So we we sort of feel that women's rates of suicide is are much lower than that of men uh, the world over, but that's not true. There are possibly several countries and ethnicities where rates of suicide seem to be higher uh, or even double 
uh, among women compared to men. And these include many of the South Asian countries, include countries from the Middle East, China. So obviously when we are thinking of preventing uh, maternal suicide, we need to be very aware of the context from which these women are coming. Uh, have they migrated recently? What are the kind of support systems they have? What is the base rate of suicide and suicidal attempt in their communities and in their countries? Um, so, yeah, so I think that was the, the major message that I had, that, you know. Yes, I think that was really very interesting for the audience because we're well aware that in the UK, um, men die by suicide about three times as often as women. So the figures that you showed, for example, for China, um, Korea, um, where the the um, the rates for women dying by suicide was higher than men was was really quite um, um, startling, I think, for the audience. And as you said, um, what were your thoughts about why suicide rates in women might be higher in in some of those countries? Well, there are possibly several reasons, and the most important seem to be that. You know, traditionally we think that untreated mental health problems are what causes yes. suicide. But it's possible that in some of these countries, the social reasons are possibly more important. For example, a lack of support, uh, presence of partner violence, uh, s gender inequity. So it looks like there are these other reasons why suicide rates are much more and in in women who are coming from conflict zones and war zones obviously the stresses are quite different including um, you know sexual violence or other forms of violence so I think it's a possibly a mixture of things which is increasing the risk uh, in some of these places um, the the other message I think which was very uh, is very important is a sort of call for future research yes um, I think we don't know enough about women who are attempting suicide and how how it is connected to infant harm for example mm -hmm. uh, it's a it's a major concern for us i mean we we listen to these um, sort of news reports of you know women harming a child yes. um, fatally but there are possibly many things happening under the sort of you know um, under that boundary under that threshold mm -hmm. and we don't have enough data for that mm -hmm. we don't have enough data on what is the impact of suicidality in mothers in pregnancy on cognitive and developmental outcomes in infants for yes. example and we also don't really know enough about the emotional cost of perinatal suicide or suicide attempts in the family mm -hmm. because very often these are secrets these are not discussed mm. uh, so what is the emotional cost how what what does what is the impact of that on future generations and what happens so i think these are areas that need uh, a lot of more uh, funding and research and i'm hoping that some people will take it on you talked about the cohort study that you're doing mm -hmm. um, in collaboration with the University of Liverpool and the difference that that was able to bring with you having um, data that was gathered um, uh, prospectively rather yeah. than retrospectively. Yeah. What sort of light do you think that shed on the um, um, thoughts and feelings uh, of women that you were able to see b who then had suicidal thoughts or, or in fact um, died by suicide yeah I think it's a it's a it's a great opportunity to be able to do a cohort like that it's very time intensive um, I don't sleep nights thinking about my <laughs> cohort and what's going on there but it's um, it's also uh, you know I really like to thank the 
uh, MRC UK for kind of funding this study. Uh, the initial part of the study was funded by the Indian Council of Medical Research and the MRC UK jointly. And now we've got um, new funding to follow up these mother-infant diets uh, till the kids are seven years old. Mm -hmm. So you look at longitudinal data and that's so rich. And you also look at the cultural you know, differences. So we, this is a parallel cohort to the viral study, yes. which is being done by the University of Liverpool. We're using exactly the same measurements. Um, and we're looking at a lot of cultural differences. And I think this suicide is going to be another, a, a, a major cultural difference. Yes. Uh, we're also looking at, for example, what is the impact on infants for if a mother has depression. Mm -hmm. So um, in countries like India, you have shared caregiving, you have grandparents, you have uncles and aunts. So if a mother has depression, does it sort of, are these things protective? Right. Does it make a difference to infant outcomes? Mm. Um, I think these are the kind of questions which are going to be answered and have a lot of implications for policy yes. and intervention. And I'm really privileged to be working with a great and fantastic group from the University of Liverpool, Professor Helen Sharp who's um, guiding us through this cohort because this cohort is for the first time such a cohort is there in India. I mean, we have birth cohorts, but without uh, much of mental health measures and dyadic measures. Mm. So doing this very, um, it's like a deep dive, yes. you know, and, and I think that's uh, that's a very important, um, important piece of research we're doing with the UK so I'm really privileged to be able to do that and the intention now you said is to follow the children up until they are so right now we have funding till they are seven years old so these are babies whom we followed since they were in the in the womb of the mother yes until they're seven years old and we do very intensive assessments with the mothers and the children and look at their neurocognitive assessments look at emotional regulation so um, so I think you know it's going to give us some very fascinating results and and also sort of understand the cross-cultural issues between the two yeah. uh, countries we also uh, in addition to all the social and cultural thing we are also looking at um, gene environment interactions we are collecting saliva for immune parameters wow. so it's a whole range of assessments that we are doing yes um, with the scientists in the UK so we're really excited about this it would be very exciting, wouldn't it, if you were uh, able to extend the time period further so that the um, the, the girls in uh, in this cohort could then be followed mums. up when they were mums well, themselves. Well, uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's it's a dream of anybody who starts a cohort to, yeah. to see that happening. And if we show success and if we show, you know, results, I'm sure at some point it might happen. Yeah, yeah. it'd be amazing. Yep, it okay. will. Well, thank you very much for, you. for coming and speaking at the conference. Thank you for having me, and podcast. it's been really interesting to be here. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hello, uh, thank you so much for coming to the conference. Could you please give a brief introduction about yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Roger Mukherjee. I'm a consultant neurodevelopmental psychiatrist. Um, I've been working with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders now for 16 years. Um, I set up the first NHS-based clinic um, for the disorder back in 2009, which came out of a research clinic. I think I've um, been involved in it and helped develop lots of stuff, given evidence to lots of places, and yeah, basically. Well, that's very interesting to hear. Could you just uh, tell us a couple of lines about how did you feel about the conference today? It's been interesting, the conference. Um, I, I think I said at the start of my talk, I'm a bit of an interloper into this area um, because I'm more a neurodevelopmental psychiatrist, so I will be dealing more with those areas. 
but there are overlaps with so many other parts of mental health and psychiatry so it's been a privilege to be able to come and share some of my work with you guys thank you so i'll let jill continue with the podcast okay so thank you very much for speaking this morning at the conference and for agreeing to do this um, podcast with us so the idea is that people who weren't able to come to the conference can be able to take away some key points from your, your from your brilliant lecture this morning that mm-hmm. really engaged everybody so um i wondered if you could just tell us a little bit about what you were talking about with, the, with there being a spectrum um, of fetal alcohol disorder rather than the what we perhaps previously thought of as the typical So back in 1973, Ken Jones and David Smith identified four broad areas which they defined as fetal alcohol syndrome. That was face, growth, cognitive features and alcohol exposure. That was the classic syndrome that has gone on to be defined um, and that most people recognise. If you trained before the 2000s, that's what you will know. Um, because that's what was told. Um, from the 2000s onwards, when technology improved more than anything else, mm-hmm. um, we've been able to identify a broader presentation and so the full syndrome is actually quite rare you know we did a cohort study which was led by uh, Cheryl Maguire which she applied diagnostic criteria to the Alsbach database and around 2 to 3% of that had full facial characteristics mm-hmm. so very few met criteria mm-hmm. um when you look at broader spectrum it's actually pretty common Yeah. Um and and that's the problem is that we now recognize the whole range of neurocognitive neurodevelopmental presentations how it impacts on people's lives behaviorally psychiatrically and we know how to identify it. It's a diagnosis of exclusion so you have to rule things out to be confident. Yes. And I have no problem with that. We've always taken that stance. But that doesn't mean that alcohol isn't having an influence. And when we take that the UK for example, is the fourth highest consumer of alcohol in the world during pregnancy at 41%. We should be paying attention to it in my opinion. Mm. And when you say quite common, you, you what the figures you presented <coughs> showed that how common exactly. So Cheryl's work is what's based on so far. We haven't done an active ascertainment prevalence study. There's been there's three broad types of study that people have done. There's been the passive surveillance. So for example, Scotland identified 20 cases in this space of about 3 years. they know that that's an underestimate mm-hmm. the bpas british pregnancy advisory service pediatric Ad- awareness service is looking at not bpas sorry the royal college of pediatrics are doing a screening and a, a passive surveillance study at the moment i understand that they're not getting huge number of reports um i may be wrong there but where cheryl went into this rather than being able to go and actively go into schools and look for it which costs a lot of money mm-hmm. was to apply the diagnostic criteria to an established dataset. Mm-hmm. And so in this case it was the Alsbach dataset. And from that she identified that there was around in the cohort where all the information was present 6%. Mm-hmm. But when you then do statistical analysis to take account of missing information and my head hurts when she starts to talk about that side of it. Um because I'm not a statistician. Uh, you can probably tell. Um it was anything up to 17% mm-hmm. which is huge mm-hmm. now we're doing a, a prevalence study in manchester at the moment because of devolution they've been able to fund various projects up there in terms of prevention and management that's a trimester project and we're part of that in trying to do an active ascertainment study so we'll hopefully have a better idea in the next few years but it is far more common than people think it is um and in some populations for example looked after children's populations 
it's even higher. Two studies in the UK would suggest a third could have FASD. And if that's the case, then you know that is a real issue that people need to be aware of and think about. And that was, I think, particularly relevant for us in perinatal psychiatry when we're working with women who have um, been looked after children themselves. And I think also what was really interesting <coughs> was what you were talking about with traditional thoughts about attachment and that attachment's a two-way thing between the parent mm -hmm. and the baby. But if the baby's brain has been affected by um, a teratogen in the mm -hmm. womb, such as alcohol, then that has an impact on how the, the mother is able to then form an attachment with the baby. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the consequences of that. So we were in, became interested in the area of how neglect postnatal environment overplayed and overlaid on uh, people with prenatal alcohol exposure. And so we were seeing a whole load of families who had had their own kids, who were otherwise considered to be good parents, who were being blamed for being bad parents. Mm -hmm. Part of my PhD, I did a focus, set a series of focus groups, and every single parent who came to that, who were adopted parents, who had been foster parents for multiple children before, were all being blamed at some point for being bad parents. Now, I didn't accept that because they can't all be bad parents. No. Um, some might be, but not all of them. Mm -hmm. So there must be something else going on. We'd written a paper with Ron Gray and Mike Rutter saying that you can investigate this by um, looking at natural experiments that can happen. So that's things like people, by coincidence, turning up to clinics and having randomization without being planned, which is what was happening for us, or things like Mandelian randomization, which is genetics doing the randomization. And that's a really clever way of, of doing that. And both aspects have been studied. Um, in our clinic, we were seeing a whole group of people who were being taken into care immediately, a whole group of people who were remaining in really significant areas of neglect. This is published in Alcohol in 2018, the journal. Um, but what it was showing was there was no difference in the neurodevelopmental outcome, um, which implies that the brain aspects is, is independent of the postnatal environment and that in the postnatal environment weren't making those bits any worse. It was doing mm -hmm. something different. Mm -hmm. Now, from an attachment point of view, we need, we need to study this more, but there was two papers that we came across in a systematic review that we were preparing um, that showed you were more likely to have a disorganized form of attachment irrespective of parenting. That was consistent with papers that had been published in the autism world in the, the 2000s um, from the Netherlands which implied that there is a brain-related aspect to that. Um, and so if the social communication domains of your brain on the interaction parts are affected, mm. it would suggest um, that that has a, a factor in how people attach. Mm -hmm. The work that's ongoing in other parts of the world now, there's a Swedish cohort that they've looked at this and they produced a paper to say that the neurodevelopmental load was not increased by adverse childhood experiences again would suggest that's f following a similar theme so there's clearly work where we need to go back and say well actually what is going on there's other things that i was learning from saying actually that the the relationship between parent and child can be evident in typically developing individuals right from that early phase mm. and so you're getting into well what is different about this and here we know the prenatal alcohol is damaging parts of the brain that deal with these factors so therefore may well have an influence. Mm -hmm. We do the parental stress index in all the people that we see in clinic to try and get an idea of where the dynamic is coming from. And what you can see whilst the overall stress in the parent-child dyad is 
is high and above clinical threshold, the factors influencing that are more child-related. Yes. Um, and so therefore you have to take into context both parts of this, not just what the parents are doing. Mm. And then some of the learning from that is that um, these children find it, uh, their brains have to work harder to, to process mm. some information. And so it's not a case of um, better parenting, but different parenting. Absolutely. And so uh, because we know that the neurological structures are damaged, and this is a midline damage from front to back, so it can affect interconnectivity, it can affect frontal lobes, it can affect cerebellum, and all the interconnected parts, aspects related to that. We also know that brain cells and structures are in the wrong place, so mm. you have an inefficient brain. So to process the same level of information of an unaffected individual, you have to work harder. But what a teacher doesn't see is the brain functioning, unless you put them in a scanner, do an fMRI scan on them whilst they're doing that, you're not going to see it, they just finish the task. Yeah, exactly. But they get tired. Mm -hmm. and, and I think what I said in the, the meeting is if for a four-year-old, you bring them home, you sit them down, give them a rest, milk and bickies, and then you would do something with them after a half an hour. Yeah. We don't do that when they get older, and we expect them to just be able to function, but actually you need to do it differently. Mm. These kids don't have the same level of conditioning. They don't learn in the same kind of way, so you have to do it differently. Mm -hmm. The naughty step doesn't work for this group. No. Classical conditioning and using star charts don't work. They want immediate reward. Mm -hmm. So you have to link things close enough, mm -hmm. but you also have to know that what works and what doesn't. We've been fortunate to be funded by the MRC to develop a parenting program which we're going through the feasibility stage, which will go to a pilot eventually. So hopefully that will lead to, we need the next stage of funding, but sort of at this point in time, we're moving towards developing evidence-based interventions that can make a difference for these groups. Because again, if you can't answer the so what, yes. people won't diagnose it. No. And so it's our responsibility as clinicians and researchers working with this to develop that evidence base so we can mm. give you the so what, therefore people will do something about it. Yes, well, that would be amazing, wouldn't it, if mm. we could do that for, our, for the mums and the dads totally. and, the, and the children, that would improve the whole family dynamic, I imagine. They, absolutely, and I think the thing that we always hear, this is anecdotally, is, is that when parents stop blaming themselves for the difficulties, their relationships with the children improve massively. Mm. Um, you know, there is a blog run by a parent who talks about the child that they diagnosed and she demonstrates that actually this child is now happy. Yes. Because they've stopped putting the pressure for the things they can't do. They've modified the environment to maximise their, their strengths and minimise their weaknesses. And this kid has gone from being a disruptive child, falling out of school, to being content, happy and functioning. Now, he may not go on to be a rocket scientist no. or, or but he will have a happy contented yes. life yes and and sometimes that's all you can aim for but parents need to readjust and there is a grief response that we mm. have to help people through mm. um, a master student of mine did a, a study on birth parents and she identified that actually that grief response is partly what people have to work through mm -hmm. because there is the element of guilt and blame that goes with it Absolutely. you can't get away from no. that but to shy away from it and not support people yeah. through that is, is not helping either. No. And then um, as a last point for uh, us working in perinatal psychiatry, um, part of uh, when we're assessing pregnant women would be asking about alcohol use in pregnancy and you had some interesting... So uh, from my perspective as somebody who sees them later, if that history is missing, we can't diagnose. Not yet. 
there may be some game changes coming along in the future where people are looking at microRNA analysis um, and other measures which if you combine them will give you a strong indicator in the child. That's not a available test yet. It's animal models. And so we need to prove it still means the same. For now, we are very reliant on history. Mm -hmm. And if that history is insufficient, we cannot make a diagnosis. And so at a perinatal period, that is crucial. Identifying when and how people have been exposed, as much as possible, the amounts. And the way we tend to do it is more of a lifestyle conversation mm. around what it was like before pregnancy. And we don't start with alcohol. We talk about lifestyles, what they generally tended to do, general health, diet, medications, and then move into smoking, drugs, alcohol. And if any of those are positive, then you go into more detail about, okay, yeah. well, what were you consuming how much how mm -hmm. regular what those kind of things are but that's for all of it and that's what a good historian does yes but it's trying not to put the pressure and make people feel guilty no it's trying to do it as part of a general history taking and then we extract the information we need yeah. for our purposes so if we can get uh, that information perspectively um, in a in a sensitive way and and getting um, real information about how much people are drinking um, not relying on the one glass of wine that might be 250 mils as yep. you were saying um, then that would be useful totally so the more information we get the better but also you have an uh, a chance for intervention there was one study done in Russia where just giving a leaflet about drinking reduced drinking by 70 percent and well, so in, in the general population in the general in population in Russia um, they did a study where they gave they were trying to do a randomized control of a of a of a brief intervention and but what was interesting for me from that is that the control group, which was basically just waiting, mm. uh, but were given a leaflet about drinking, and the other group had the brief interventions. The brief intervention group reduced their drinking by about 85%, but there was about a 70% reduction in the leaflet group. Gosh. So just giving people information is an intervention in itself. And so that history, accurate information from a professional who knows what they're talking about, mm -hmm. who can support the parents through it, will mm -hmm. make a difference. Brilliant. And so there are things at your stage that you can do to prevent something. And how many things can we prevent? You know, and yeah. most of the evidence points towards the regular ongoing drinking as being the most common or regular binges. Mm -hmm. And so if we can give people advice early on, the ability to minimise risk is, is huge. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for speaking to us. You're welcome. Um, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks. Hello, hi, good afternoon. Thank you very much, Lisa, for coming for our perinatal conference. It's a pleasure having you here. Could you briefly introduce yourself? Uh, I'm Lisa Segre, and I'm delighted to be here at the Royal College. It's a, quite an honor. And I am an associate professor in the College of Nursing at the University of Iowa. I, I am a clinical community psychologist by training, but I work in the College of Nursing. Excellent. Hope you enjoy the rest of the conference, and I'll hand it over to Jill to continue the podcast. Thank you for uh, presenting this morning at the um, conference. It was a really uh, interesting presentation. Um, and the idea of the podcast is to allow people who weren't able to attend to gain some of the learning from your presentation. So um, would you be able to tell us sort of the key points that you would like to share with um, perinatal psychiatry community? All right. Thank you, Jill. Um, yes, I think I can do that. I uh, was invited to give an update on listening visit research. And so this morning I presented kind of 
two facets of the research we've done. Uh, I talked about how we brought listening visits over to the United States and um, then some of the uh, four trials that we've done to evaluate efficacy. And uh, probably the most exciting project to me that I mentioned this morning was the uh, statewide dissemination of listening visits once we had evidence that it's effective delivered by U.S. providers to U.S. women. Um, we disseminated it into the 21 maternal health agencies in Iowa. So that was um, part one, what we've done with listening visits in the U.S. And then in part two, we really wanted to look at the evidence uh, for the effectiveness of listening visits worldwide. Uh, the National Institute of Clinical Excellence included listening visits in their 2007 mm. guidelines. Uh, in 2014, in a review of the evidence, decided that there was no longer sufficient evidence mm -hmm. for listening visits and removed them from the NICE guidelines. Mm. And so, uh, Birgitta Wickberg and uh, the Swedish champion of listening visits and myself decided, well, maybe it's time for a meta-analysis of listening visits. So uh, we put together a team and we evaluated uh, and we have included seven studies in that meta-analysis looking at the effectiveness of listening visits across studies in the U.S. in Europe. And the bottom line is that we, uh, initial results, we found effect size of 0.43. Mm -hmm. uh, however, we have not yet corrected for a dichotomization of outcomes, and we haven't corrected for unreliability of uh, the instruments. But um, my statistician tells me once we do those corrections, the effect size will go up. So it's effective. Brilliant. Yes. And the screening tool that was used to um, establish whether women had um, any degree of depression was? Um, so we're looking at seven different studies. So mm -hmm. it depends on the study yeah. that uh, you, you are looking. I know um, the first study by uh, Holden, Zagofsky, and Cox used uh, diagnostic interviews. Right. Um, but it varied across the seven yeah. studies. And in Iowa, the um, screening tool that they use is the Edinburgh Postnatal So Station we tool? had two. So um, in Iowa, it was a pragmatic trial that was also a randomized control trial. Mm -hmm. So this was listening visits in um, home visiting programs. So the um, home visitors identified depression using the EPDS, a score of 12 and above. Um, as part of the, because the home visitors don't do diagnostic interviews. No. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, um, but as part of the study, uh, my study team did do diagnostic interviews. However, the entry criteria for the study was the 12 and above because I wanted to have the same kind of women in the trial that uh, home visitors would normally have in yes. the trial. So um, we did analyses for um, both the um, women who met criteria for major depression as well as those who had the score 12 and above. Mm. And um, the sort of women that the home visitors are working tend to be impoverished women, you were Yes, saying, in the USA, in right. Our US. home visiting, whereas you have universal home visiting, we have uh, targeting women living in uh, low-income areas. 
who might be experiencing all sorts of adversities. And you, you gave an example of how a listening visit had been able to allow a, a young mum space to think about what was impacting maybe on her mood. And it, so the listening visit was almost a sort of mentoring type of um, visit in a way in getting the, the, the young woman to think for herself what solutions right. might be. Right, she was a teen mom yeah. and she needed, uh, living with a, 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 a boyfriend who was abusive yeah. and was going to lead her you know, using drugs, so mm. she had a high chance for uh, having some issues with the police because partners often get the, the girlfriends yeah. in trouble. And uh, so she was feeling stress and having difficulty with uh, schoolwork. Yeah. So yes, the, the home visitor, uh, went in and gave her some space to talk about that and she was able to decide for herself mm. I'm going to go back to mom and uh, things improve for herself yeah. yeah and the sort of training that the home visitors um, had to be able to feel confident and in, in doing the listening visits was two days two days training so from? we have the first stage of training is uh, education on perinatal depression um, and then the the in-person training that I do from, for listening visits um, comes from the training developed by Sheila Seely, and, uh, and then we brought it over and do that. It's a day training. Uh, it's a very logical kind of training. Sheila gave me her slides and said, use them as, as you wish. And so we start with um, the history of listening visits and, and the empirical evidence. And then we go into the training proper and we start with, okay, so you have a mom with an elevated score. How are you going to introduce listening visits? And so they do. And we talk about, you know, the, the kinds of considerations in, in the introduction. And then they actually develop their own introduction on paper and share um, and then we uh, do some practicing of the uh, listening visit skills of reflective listening uh, we have some videotapes we had a, an, a, a visitor from the UK who was a health visitor come over to the US and she did some demonstration tapes for us and so the uh, training is got some of that and then practice and um, the new part to the training that I've added because I'm in the College of Nursing when I arrived there I thought I looked around at my colleagues and many of the nursing students uh, when they learn how to do procedures what they do is a simulation. So they have the didactic training, and then they go into the clinical simulation labs called ClinSim Labs. Mm -hmm. Yes, we do Yeah, do that. And so uh, I thought, oh, I should do that for listening visits. So at the end of the training, what they all of the um, visitors have is a simulated listening visit so they don't get to go and usually they go back to their offices in the maternal health project they go back wherever they're from they put that little listening visit binder on their shelves but I no 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 you're gonna get a phone call from our simulation provider uh, so they actually bring out the material in their office and the simulation person plays the role of the mother and then they get to uh, deliver the listening visit and then I get feedback about their skills Brilliant. so that's how we do our training and have you had feedback from the home visitors how, how do they find uh, doing the listening visit so we we did we uh, I have a survey of, of those um, visitors and I'm I'm not remembering all the results um, 
but for the most part, they, they're uh, very positive about the listening visits and, and provide good examples of how it's been helpful Brilliant. to them. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Okay, and as uh, president of the Marseille Society, yes. do you want to tell us what's happening uh, next October? Oh, thank you for that opening. Uh, so we are having the uh, next biennial meeting of International Marseille Society in Iowa City, Iowa, uh, from October 5th through 8th. And it's uh, also, uh, the, the theme is innovations in research, uh, practice and policy, uh, so very broad so that ev everyone feels they can contribute. Um, we have kind of a dual theme because really what we're going to be doing is celebrating the 40th anniversary of International Marseille. And so the, I believe the first meeting was in 1980. And so we get to celebrate that. And we have uh, the program, if you go to marseille2020.com, you will see that the website is uh, open and ready to accept registration and ready to accept abstracts. And if you go under the program tab, you will see our list of invited speakers. And uh, it's a really wonderful lineup. And you will also see the workshops that we're going to have uh, on the first day, October 5th. And I don't want to call that the pre-conference workshop day because it's really going to be, you're coming to the University of Iowa. We are a place of learning. Mm -hmm. And so the first day will be devoted to learning. And I believe there are like 12 uh, uh, workshops, some morning, some afternoon. Postpartum Support International wow. is giving their uh, two-day certification training. Um, and so we just have a lot going on. So, and the gala dinner is going to be included in the registration fee, and um, very exciting. Great. Well, thank you very much thank for you. coming to the conference this morning and for doing this podcast yes. with us. And thank you so much. Oh, yeah, thank you. Nice. Hopefully, see you very at the Marseille. Nice. Yes. yes. Thank you. Okay, Trudy. Welcome to the podcast. So the idea of the podcast is to try and spread the learning a little bit for people who weren't able to attend today. So I know that you've told us this is um, the last uh, scientific meeting where you are going to be um, chair. Um, and I just wondered if you could share a few thoughts with us over your experience over the past um, three years? So far. And it'll so be far. four by next summer. Exactly. Yeah. So um, do you know it's been absolutely incredible? Amazing. Amazing. So. I talked, when I started, I talked about um, a tipping point in perinatal psychiatry, perinatal mental health, that actually, you know, there'd been a whole wave of activity, people, different, you know, different backgrounds, different organizations coming together, lived experience, charities, you know, the faculty, all sorts of things coming, it's far too many for me to mention, but coming together where actually the subject came right to the top of the agenda about four or five years ago and I've had ju I've just had an absolute privilege in being the chair of the faculty in a time where um, that sort of being embedded across services across sort of educational platforms um, across learning avenues not just here in England but you know right across the UK mm. So that's been amazing, actually, um, to seeing, you know, just watching that happening. Because the expansion of services has been tremendous, hasn't it, really? I mean, sort of, when we looked yesterday with the, the 
the CPC Day and the, the number of community teams has increased from, what is it, 17 to 79 or something. I know. So there's all those new perinatal psychiatrists like myself as well as all the members of the multidisciplinary team and the, the, the learning that has gone on um, spearheaded by the college uh, and the faculty has been amazing. So what, what, how else would you like to um, address the perinatal community thinking about the, the, the next step now, moving on um, from where we are now at the still riding the wave. We are still riding the wave, but I think, as I said, you know, waves always come to an end. I don't think the perinatal wave is going to go away quickly. I think it's a, you know, we're still riding at the top, perhaps on its way down a little bit, but maybe not. <laughs> I'd crossed. love it, fingers crossed, I'd love it to carry on. I think there are lots of things we have to do. I think we have to absolutely train our psychiatrists mm-hmm. uh, and to make sure that we have really high quality psychiatrists who have the skills and the knowledge to be able to practice as fantastic clinicians, but also to bring in um, clinical research, things like quality improvement, and also good academic research um, as part of the specialism. I think we also have to ensure that our uh, multidisciplinary teams are also really excellent and um, learning and engaged and that we're providing a variety of educational platforms definitely for our psychiatrists but also for our multidisciplinary teams Mm -hmm. because actually we have to look after the staff that are going to be looking after our service users and carers Mm. so that's critical so I think the um, faculty has a big role in you know a large role in doing that and the other part is about resilience and you know I really think it's important that we think about the resilience of you know of our workforce to make sure that uh, we have the energy and the strength to to do this work. I think you have to leave us now to go and uh, chair the AGM. But I guess um, another message is, isn't it, we, we had Wendy this morning with the Choose Psychiatry, and I guess we're thinking not just Choose Psychiatry, but Choose Perinatal we're Psychiatry. Absolutely thinking <laughs> we're absolutely thinking Choose Perinatal yeah. Psychiatry. But that's not at the detriment of any of the other no. specialties which are critical in, you know, we have a huge interface with our general adult colleagues, our liaison colleagues, our CAMS colleagues, our forensic colleagues, and, you know, it's, uh, it's working together to make sure, we, you know, we're providing continuity. Brilliant, Joel. (laughs) Great, thank you. So welcome, Robin. Um, You've come to present at the conference this afternoon. Um, I wondered if you'd be able to just um, give us some um, key learning points from um, your lecture so that we can share that learning with people that weren't able to attend today. Certainly. I'm going to be looking at the early um, parent baby relationship from the perspective of infant mental health and I will be examining why that early relationship is so important and then looking at some of the pressures that can impinge upon the relationship and thus affect the social and emotional development of the baby wherein lies the most cost to society when things go wrong. Um, I shall also be giving a case presentation involving video and finishing off with looking at some of the practical ways in which we can intervene using the sort of infant mental health perspective. So you you mentioned some of the pressures that can be brought to bear on that relationship. What sort of pressures were you... um Well, given given the conference, of course, you've all got maternal mental illness at the forefront, um, and as usual in this situation, you seem to have forgotten daddies. (laughs) 
who are equally important. Absolutely. Um, anything that anything that crowds the baby and the baby's emotional needs and the capacity to respond to those out of the parental mind. The parent's sort of task could be very crudely summarised as the capacity to hold the baby in mind and then the infant and then the small child and then the adolescent and then the adult thinking about it. The mm. parent never ceases to hold the child in mind and the child grows within the parent's mind. But at the beginning of life, there are lots of things that can crowd that out. Uh, mental illness is the obvious one, given the circumstances here, but it could be social issues such as extreme poverty, poor housing, um, ethnic prejudice in the area. It could be other personal issues such as a substance abuse difficulty, um, an inability to tune in with the baby, projecting onto the baby aspects of the, the parental past. The baby makes things difficult sometimes for some parents to relate to. Mm -hmm. It could be a baby with a regulatory or a sensory integration disorder, which is very common in very low birth weight and prem babies. Mm -hmm. I've also worked in skaboos. Um, for some parents, that can be very difficult for them. It makes it hard to attune to the baby, hard to forecast what the baby is going to do next, and hard to interpret what the baby's needs are. Uh, and this is a cause of frustration for the parent. Um, Babies can have all sorts of difficulties depending on what's happened um, while the mother was pregnant. There's the obvious ones like being affected by a teratogen but also by maternal stress during pregnancy. Um, we now know that also um, through epigenetics that the father's experiences even before conception can have an effect on the baby. So we're looking at the very social the, the problems. So sort of divided up into four areas starting up off with the baby, what the baby brings to the relationship, then the parent's capacity to interact, and that would include um, being sensitive and responding appropriately, then the parent's own personal characteristics, uh, and finally sort of socio-demographic issues. Mm -hmm. So all of those will have an effect on the relationship, and an infant mental health intervention needs to be multi-systemic in order to take account for all of those. Absolutely. And the, the sort of interventions that you're going to be talking about, <coughs> can you... I'm just going to look at the very crude way of, of um, thinking about anybody going into a family, mm -hmm. um, looking at how a family can be supported, looking at how you can offer um, um, yeah, straightforward support and understanding without being judgmental, look at some of the techniques such as interaction guidance, mm -hmm. um, the need to be an advocate for the baby sometime. I'll mention um, infant parent psychotherapy and I'll mention um, parenting, therapeutic parenting groups. And um, other, if women have had um, uh, not the best parenting experience themselves when they were children, um, is that something that you um, are able to address and work through with the mum during that uh, yes. intervention with her? Yes, that, that's her a very good question. From a psychodynamic perspective, we'd look at the sort of repetition of early parenting patterns. Basically. We all parent in a taken-for-granted way, but what we take for granted is the way we were parented. Yes. And it's no more than that. And that's, to emphasise, that doesn't involve parent blaming. It doesn't involve mm -hmm. mother blaming. We're talking about the repetition of unconscious patterns that were pre-verbal. And because they're pre-verbal, they can't be consciously recalled, but they're in procedural memory, so they'll be reenacted when the baby appears. Mm -hmm. There's nothing like a baby to um, activate unconscious conflicts going back to your own babyhood. Mm -hmm. And apart from anything else, the little blighters are designed to be stressful. <laughs>
they are, they are. Um, so part of the um, interventions are making sure mum uh, is kind to herself perhaps and um, uh-huh. looking after yep. her health so that then she can, and yep. dad, um, so that then they can um, be able to parent as best they can. Then. My thought was always if the parents need to look after themselves before they can look after the yes. baby really because yeah. um, the two go together yeah. uh, and in that sense the therapist has to take responsibility for looking after the parents so the, the whole thing sort of goes down a cascade of parallel process. So you, you were talking about some of the um, experiences that dads can have had that will have had um, an effect at the epigenetic mm-hmm. level. What sort of um, experiences or... Um well, I saw some research came up in, in JAMA last week about how um, heavy drinking, that even if you stop three months prior to conception, um, can have an effect on the developing fetus and that was interesting Mm. and I remember when I worked in um, the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Hackney which is part of GOS um, several times we saw babies with fetal alcohol effect and definitely the mother hadn't drunk but the father had been alcoholic and I now see that the research has caught up with that again looking at the epigenetic effect of heavy drinking in the father or rather I guess the epigenetic effect of the father being under severe stress and self-medicating being passed on to the child and I think the sort of epigenetics is really fascinating yeah yeah excellent okay well thank you very much for sharing that with us thank you very much okay thank you Thank you.